Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And the political forces right now in the world are about extremism. And they're yanking communities apart and separating them and filling them with fear and lies and hate. And so truth is needed in that. Discernment is needed in that. Compassion is needed in that. Care is needed in that. And the, those that have the capacity can and should step in with those tools. So that shaming and blaming, there's a place for it. But uh, within institutions, uh, within organizations, with our families and our communities, we often need a different approach. Not everyone can do it, but those of us who can need to step in to support a different culture, a different conversation. Welcome to the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon.
Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm in conversation today with Shaquille Chaudhary. Shaquille is an educator, consultant, and author with over 25 years of experience in the field of racial justice, diversity, and inclusion. He coaches executive teams and also facilitates dialogue processes to resolve intergroup conflict, having led projects internationally as well as with organizations locally. He's the author of Deep Diversity, a compassionate scientific approach to achieving racial justice. Written in an accessible storytelling manner, many have called it a breakthrough book on issues of systemic racial discrimination due to its non-judgmental approach that integrates human psychology with critical race perspectives. A very warm welcome to you. It's lovely to be here, Sharon. It's lovely to be here and, and to be with you again. I should say that we we brought in Shaquille as a consultant for IMS, for the Insight Meditation Society, who uh, really led us in a, a wonderful workshop and was truly non-judgmental and not only bringing in, um, you know, kind of uh, human psychology, but uh, Dharma understanding, which was which was our language. So it was really great. Mm. It was lovely to be there with you. I'm really excited to dive into your work today and maybe the place to start the conversation is if you might share with the listeners what brought you to racial diversity work. Well, my entry point was really uh, an awakening, you know, when I was doing my master's program and I had already been doing some community organizing and I was involved in environmental uh, justice kind of work. And I think my exposure to classes that uh, got me to think about race and identity just made me realize that there was so much about my own life that I had completely neglected to understand. There were just patterns around systemic discrimination that I uh, often thought was my own fault, uh, that it was my own shortcoming that was at play. And I also started realizing how much internalized racism I had, how much parts of my identity, my South Asian identity, my Muslim identity that I had just pushed away and didn't want to have anything to do with. I really just wanted to fit in. And that meant also desiring to be white and middle class like everybody else. You know, the middle class stuff sort of worked out eventually um, as my family, you know, um, uh, the immigration dance sort of uh, completed and we got to a level of stability. But the, um, you know, the white thing didn't work out quite as well. <laughs> did you grow up in Toronto? No, I did not. I grew up in small towns, actually, um, in southern Ontario, outside of Toronto. <laughs> so I was, I was really in, in a predominantly white context. And I should also say, too, that... Um, I was one of those rare few folks that didn't actually experience a lot of overt racism. I experienced mm-hmm. a lot of kindness and care and lots of small town values. So I have a lot of, a lot of deep connection with that. However, what I also just realized is that um, being in an environment where there was really no one else like me or like our family, there was just lots of shame. There was lots of, there's lots of outsider status. And, and what that meant was that I just really desperately wanted to fit in. And so in the fitting in meant unconsciously, I just 
tried to get rid of everything that would mark me in any particular way. And so I think the awareness um, in my mid-20s that this is what had been going on for me was such an epiphany. But also, I think as I started uh, realizing that there was just so much data, that there were you know, decades worth of reports and government studies that kind of said, hey, look, there are problems. And these problems are, are based on race and ethnicity and gender and sexual orientation. And it's not just something that's made up. We've looked at all the different variables. And so therefore, we have to call this racism. We have to call this sexism. And so um, in, in becoming aware of that, I was sort of shocked and stunned because I was thinking, how did I get through my whole life and not, and not be aware of any of this? Why wasn't I taught this? And I was also professionally trained as a teacher, as a young teacher at that point. So I immediately just started applying my educator skills. And this is what I wanted to do. So I became an educator activist. And that was a big part of my story, at least in my mid to late 20s. Do you remember the first time you saw uh, representation in the media and the major media? Because I would imagine part of that aloneness or that sense of isolation was that everyone on TV was white, you know, or perhaps not by the time you were growing up. Yeah, no, it was exactly that. There were there was very little representation. I mean, the only representation was this vague representation of Gandhi, mm-hmm. which seemed to represent some of my heritage, which I was very, of course, proud of. But Outside of that, there was really not very much at all, uh, certainly in the 80s. And it wasn't really until the 90s that that there was more <clears throat> representation that started to show up in, in films and in music, uh, you know, in pop culture. And uh, so, yeah, those are there was, you know, there's the occasional indie flick that would be. Um, uh, that would be there. There's a lot of, there's actually movies from, from the UK, um, that, uh, like Buddha of suburbia, um, Sammy and Rosie get laid, like these kinds of movies Mm -hmm. that were, that were really, um, very edgy and, and very South Asian, except in the UK context. So that was probably my earliest exposure to representation of people who look like me. It wasn't really from the North American context. It was from, from, you know, another, another colonial context, but, uh, but it still felt like it was important and, you know, um, filled a very deep need that I had. Mm -hmm. We're recording this in late September of 2022. And I think of these last years with the pandemic and just different levels of understanding of interconnection that have really come forward because I think, for example, of the often, uh, for many people, invisible systems that make our lives possible. I mean, the first time I began thinking about the supply chain, you know, was I had friends who were having books published and suddenly there's this paper shortage and everything's delayed. And, um, and you think our lives are very intertwined with the rest of the world, really, unless you're, you know, particularly affected by globalization, you might not think about this every day. And, um, you know, we're used to going to the supermarket and having everything we want being on the shelf. And we don't necessarily think about the many, many, many people that are involved in somehow that product making it into our hands. So I'm curious as to whether that kind of awareness um, 
has been newer for you as well, or if that's been something you've been aware of all along? I think I've always had some awareness of it because I've I've been studying and looking at patterns around race and ethnicity and globalization and and uh, colonization and so on and and you know the impact of multilateral agreements and these kinds of things. So I've been aware of those things, but I don't think it ever became as embodied as in the last couple of years. I mm-hmm. think everything, um, uh, my home was under renovation. And so all of a sudden we didn't know whether anything, any work was going to get done. We didn't even know if we were going to be able to get the materials. And so, you know, I told my contractor, Hey, can you just buy whatever you need to for the next foreseeable month or two to try to finish this job and stick it somewhere. Right. Uh, (laughs) and, and, and so that was at play. And then even today, I mean, I feel like, uh, you know, the impact outside of the early days of like the the, the, to- the run on toilet paper and things like that mm-hmm. that were happening. I mean, I feel like we're seeing the incredible breakdown of the supply chain of the economy as we know it of neoliberal economics and its shortcomings with just in time, you know, uh, supply chain mm-hmm. kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Like we're just seeing that it is steady. It is everywhere. And I'm not sure it's going away anytime soon. Mm hmm. You know, I talk so much about, um, in my role as a meditation teacher, is, uh, I talk so much about the stress cycle. And um, there are clearly many factors that are in operation. There's the pressure, the incident, the comment, whatever it is that seems to be the source of the stress. And then there's the resource with which it's met, one's inner strengths, um, sense of community rather than isolation and so on. And Naturally, there's, you know, given what I do, there's a great emphasis on those inner strengths and having a different sense of resource and meeting the the stressful circumstance. But a lot of people take that to mean mistakenly that we don't ever try to do anything about the external circumstance, that we only work on the inner resource. And I think it's really both, you know, we understand, I think, in a way that is a tremendous blessing in life that those inner strengths and that sense of community are make a crucial difference in how we respond, but we would never want to just ignore the, the other factors, you know, and what might be the role of, you know, the pressure and if there's something we can change. And so um, I think of that also in the context of the role of larger governing systems in our lives so that if we don't have that context, if we don't have that awareness that, we can take everything personally, you know, and even though while it still might be good to work on those inner strengths, I think it is missing a lot. You know, it's like someone who wants to, as an example, start a small business and their application is denied. And instead of reflecting on even some blatant hints, sometimes that it might be because of the color of their skin, we take on complete responsibility for what happens as a personal failure. And so we miss a lot in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting you say that because I, I was also just thinking about, um, you know, there's a there's this tension and actually this danger, I think, that's always been there, especially uh, in, in um, the North American predominantly white uh, mindfulness community. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'd say that because there's a way in which 
there's an there's a really interesting intersection where race and culture hit mindfulness. And so there's a way in which um, uh, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant society, the Western world as we describe it, really has a focus on the individual and the nuclear family. Although that wasn't always the case, it certainly has become the case more and more, in a, especially in a, in a state of hyper-capitalism. And what's interesting is that in embarking on mindfulness work and doing the inner work, it can almost feed into that reality uh, that everything is my responsibility. And in fact, we ignore the systems and we also ignore community. And there's a way in which I think there's always been that danger where everything um, can get misinterpreted in, uh, in the mindfulness meditation communities. Like it, it is all about me. It's all about what I can work on. It's my inner strengths, my inner skill. And we forget that it has to be done in context of community mm-hmm. and that that's really important. And also how our communities are not impacted the same mm-hmm. by the systems and structures and history uh, that create the gaps, that create the, the, the undertreatment, the mistreatment and the over policing of minoritized communities and uh and relatively speaking, greater levels of support, care, and generosity if you come from a more dominant community. So I think all of those things are there. And I think we always learn need to hold these intention, the idea of individual as well as community, um, uh, individual as well as the systems. And I think in holding those tensions is the trick. And I think it's also really challenging because that's not how we are socialized. It's not how we are taught. Uh, it's much easier to collapse right towards uh, individualism. And, and I think that's, uh, that's, the, that's really where uh, I like to bring the, my work around, around deep diversity and really start getting people to hold those tensions of realizing, right, we have personal power and we have to develop our personal power. This is our leverage. And while we do that, we also need to keep in mind and keep nurturing community as well as the impact of systems. Yeah. So we're always coming at it from opposite directions and needing to meet in the middle because both sides are impactful and, and I think provocative and important to, to really consider. And it's, I think it's also been more recently um, for some people in kind of mainstream white culture, it was a, shocking to see, you know, so many disparities in the healthcare system. It's like you can read them, but they're numbers and there's statistics. And then to realize the actual consequences in people's lives and, um, and also to understand that uh, I have an African-American friend who works in the inner city schools in Baltimore, bringing yoga and meditation. We were doing this presentation together once and he said something like, um, the system is not broken. The system's working exactly the way it was intended to work. Mm-hmm. So I said, what do you mean? He said, do you know how much money is going to the construction of prisons in, in Maryland compared to schools? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a lot of intentionality around this and behind this. And um, So I'm wondering how this is explained to someone who maybe hasn't encountered it personally. And if they have encountered it, how do you actually 
find those inner strengths and, and be perhaps more effective in dealing with it? Well, first of all, I think it's, it's to start recognizing patterns. So some of this is just what I would describe as this is literacy work. Mm-hmm. It's developing a basic level of equity literacy. So what I mean by that is it's got to be broken down into really basic pieces. So um, I want to talk about this as literacy um, because I think it's something that people understand. So uh, before there is, uh, we understand a letter creates a word that create, helps create a sentence that has meaning. Before all of that, the letter is just a squiggly line. We have to learn to discern and recognize that letter. And then we put it together with other letters to create words and sentences, and then you get meaning. Otherwise, it's just a squiggly line. Okay, so literacy is the process of learning to decode basically squiggly lines. And once we start recognizing the pattern, then reading becomes easy. Language skills become easy. Um, But it requires an arduous stage. Uh, For example, my eight and 10 year old are going through, but also adults for who English isn't uh, uh, a first language, it's a second language, that it's an arduous stage. And it's really difficult. It requires a lot of emotional and cognitive energy to go through that. But we do it and it happens. Then we start recognizing the patterns everywhere. We can't help but read billboards because that's just what our brain does automatically. We can't unsee the letters anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, equally, we've got to break this down to manageable patterns. So, for example, in a workplace, if a manager does not know the pattern that women are more likely to be interrupted at meetings than their male counterparts. If they don't know that that's even a pattern, it will happen in front of them and they won't intervene because basically for them, it will appear like a squiggly line. It has no meaning. And yet that inaction, that inability to recognize means that sexism marches on and women are demoralized under their watch. So that's really, it's just, it's really basic. So there are many, many patterns. Mm -hmm. And I invite people in my book, but also my work is just, let's break this down to a literacy project. Let's make this so that we can just start recognizing patterns. There are patterns, for example, across any sector it's been studied, whether it's education, that uh, children of color, especially black and indigenous kids, tend to be streamed into courses below their ability, that they tend to get um, harsher punishment uh, than their more uh, white normative counterparts, that if teachers and administrators don't even know that that's a pattern, they can't interrupt it. They may, in fact, enact it themselves because our brain gives all kinds of predetermined um, stereotyped reactions and responses. So on a really basic level, we've got to learn to discern, to uh, recognize basic patterns around us. This is just work. This is just straight up learning. Um, there are many books, uh, uh, not just mine. There's many videos. There's online pieces. And it's just, okay, pick up a pattern. Pick up a new pattern every day if you are in a workplace, if you are in a school, if you are 
in your community? What are the patterns that will be playing out around race and gender and sexual orientation and disability? And the more we practice, it is sheer practice. The more we practice, the easier it becomes. And at a certain point, it clicks. And then we are able to start seeing the patterns and anticipate patterns mm-hmm. and discern when it is actually a pattern, when it's not. But when we don't have those skills, um, we get stuck. So it's believed that in general, there's a 360-hour rule for adults to develop English as a second language skill, that people need about 360 hours to have a basic level of proficiency in English, not advanced, just basic in order to kind of get by 360 Mm -hmm. hours. So I suggest the same thing that there's a, there's a three, uh, I propose a 360 hour rule equally for equity literacy. Have you put in your time? Have you read? Have you watched videos? Have you been in conversations? Because the closer you get to that 360 hours and the more you surpass it, the easier this work becomes to start seeing these patterns that are local in your life and then start branching them out and expanding that circle to seeing the the bigger patterns that are national, that are global, that are economic. But it starts with something very local and very close to us. Well, I want to say congratulations on the book. It sounds like it's been a journey for you to bring it into the world. I think it usually is, you know, for the ones that come from a deep place. And um, it's also coming at a time when sort of in, in mainstream culture, there's uh, certainly much more, and I believe a different conversation about race that's happening. There absolutely is. Uh, and I would say that, you know, there's always a, a tipping point. There's always a point at which there's an inflection and we don't go back from that. And I would say that 2020, the, uh, the murder of George Floyd and the protest that followed was a tipping point, especially around anti-Black racism and the conversation around systemic racism. Although the George Floyd murder was not just systemic. I mean, that was overt. And so that's why it's really easy for people to kind of go, that was just a, you know, that was a a bad police officer who shouldn't have been in the first place, which is true. But there's a context within which, uh, you know, police forces that are predominantly white, you know, all the data shows overuse force uh, uh, when it comes to folks of color in relationship to their white counterparts. I mean, let's be clear. Uh, there's also overuse of force against white communities as well. However, it's not proportional. It's not proportional to the to the to the population. The uh, the over police. There is no over policing of white communities. In fact, if anything, there's a decent level of policing. There's not um, um, uh, the incarceration rates do not exceed the the population. Uh, for example, in fact, it's it's. Uh, it can be underrepresented in most mm-hmm. cases. However, uh, that's not the case for for racialized communities, for Black communities, for Indigenous communities, for uh, Latinx communities. That's just not the case. And so um, that dynamic plays out. And so that was a tipping point. Yet people still don't fully see it, but it is a different conversation now. And I think it's the first time that uh, in my work, I've had leaders showing up saying, okay, we have a problem. 
our organization struggling. And we know that us being white is part of the problem. We just don't know what to do about it. And that level of vulnerability is, is different than it's ever been. And there's more organizations doing that uh, than there were before. And I think that's, that's where the conversation has changed. And that's where, where there's more hope because this inflection point, we, we don't come back from it. We, we keep advancing. And so that's really, that's really important. So there's, there's a, on one level, there's more hope because we are now finally trying to talk about racism in its systemic form, not just its overt. And that's data-based. That mm-hmm. is, the, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a whole conversation around, uh, 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 a misconversation happening around critical race theory, but fundamentally what it's, what it's, what we seem to not be talking about is that is that racial justice and equity is based on numbers. It's based on the data. It's based on the gaps that we have seen, not in one report, but in umpteen reports, not in one sector, but in every sector it's been studied in. And so, so the system is the problem. And the issue is that this also becomes really emotional. And, and so um, part of the struggle in this work has been that I think, frankly, you know, uh, one of the one of the issues in racial justice and equity is that um, we haven't really approached this as a literacy project. We've approached this more as an urgency project. But without the literacy, people can't make the change that's needed. You can't just you know shame and blame people into 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 changing their ways. You can sometimes, but it only works in a limited capacity. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get pushback. And I think it's one of the things that we really need to start recognizing and people in my field also really need to recognize is that uh, we have to approach this pedagogy, the teaching and the education in a way that is almost different than any other context because this is so emotional. This work is um, touches consciously and unconsciously the core part of being human that says I'm either good or bad. My people are good or my people are bad. And nobody ever wants to be part of the bad group. Mm-hmm. Well, the book is really centered around a compassionate approach to racial justice and not using shame as the springboard for change. And that seems to fit right into this this conversation because um, will shame actually work, do you think, for long-term change? So I think about multiple strategies are always needed. So the tried and true method is protest. Mm -hmm. And protest is really important. You know, thousands of people being out on the street. When protests happen... When Black Lives Matter, for example, is out on the streets, they are shaming and blaming people, mm-hmm. and rightfully so, because what they are doing is they're not focused on individuals, they're focused on institutions. Mm-hmm. We have always used protest, shame, blame, anger, upset, and rightfully so. That's an important strategy in, in uh, marginalized communities coming forward. And for change and enacting change. So I want to say that there's a place for that when we focus on institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, However, 
We unfortunately don't realize that we're using those same strategies, and these are used very commonly on individuals, on our coworkers, on our family members, on our neighbors, and in public conversations, and especially on social media. And those things just don't work particularly well. I just don't know a lot of people that have been shamed into changing their individual ways. Now, of course, there's some when there's like really blatant experiences and things like that, but Overall, what it does is fundamentally silence people. It doesn't change their ways, it just silences them. And silence is kind of dangerous because we don't know what's happening in that space. Mm. Uh, and, and in order to have conversations, people have to be able to ask questions from their place of innocence, from their place of upset, from their place of, of, uh, of care and their place of clumsiness. But what that means is that who is supposed to respond to those people? Now, unfortunately, what's happened is that the burden has always fallen on the minoritized groups mm-hmm. to both do the educating, to do the compassion. And there is like a lot of compassion fatigue. And and it's though the people that are carrying the weight of the oppression themselves have to also hold everything for the dominant group members to change. So that's a tension. It's a very mm-hmm. important one. Um, so we just want to say that that what's happened historically is it's just like it's just defaulted onto the minoritized groups themselves to have to fix the damn problem that they are experiencing and also do all the educating and that kind of thing. So that's one part of the equation. The other part, though, is that some of us, regardless of our identities, whether we come from a dominant group, a non-dominant group, whether we're men, whether we identify as women or, or, or trans or whether we identify as racial minorities or white people, doesn't matter, that some of us can do that heavy lifting, that some of us can do the teaching, that some of us do have the capacity to help teach um, in, a, in a more methodical way, in a more compassionate way, in a more caring way. And I think those of us that do have to step into the breach because Right now, the forces are such that uh, the political forces are trying to pull us apart. And the political forces right now in the world are about extremism. And they're yanking communities apart and separating them and filling them with fear and lies and hate. And so truth is needed in that. Discernment is needed in that. Compassion is needed in that. Care is needed in that. And those that have the capacity can and should step in with those tools. So that shaming and blaming, you know, um, there's a place for it. But uh, within institutions, uh, within organizations, with our families and our communities, we often used to have, we often need a different approach. Not everyone can do it, but those of us who can need to step in to support a different culture, a different conversation. Can you give me an example of compassion in that, in that particular context, in that conversation? Well, often I get asked the question, how do you, how do you make people change? Mm-hmm. How do you, uh, someone who's just saying uh, really challenging things, and this is, I think, where the mindfulness comes in, is that frequently in the conversations around race and ethnicity, everyone's a little bit on guard. Everyone's a little reactive. And because... That's the nature of how this conversation goes. It's how polarizing it is, how t- challenging it is, mm-hmm. how spiky it 
is, um, we're more reactive than we are responsive. And so with the mindfulness work, this is where it can also help us to take a breath. Okay, what's being said? Um, what is the feeling that's underneath? So for example, I was in a, I was in a conversation uh, with you know, someone in my extended circle who was a police officer. And we were in a conversation in a social environment once and, and um, you know, the, he had a very particular perspective on, on race and had a very pers- particular perspective on rules. And he was someone who really came from a place of rules. So it's not, it's not, uh, uh, it's not something that is unusual that he became a police officer. There's people that just have particular temperaments that are drawn to that. And, and so what he was trying to describe was that, you know, those people are coming over and there'd be some racialized community and there's nothing we can do because all these laws are in place to stop us from doing the work we can do. And, and basically he was really upset. And I, I remember being in that situation and like, there's so many things he was saying that was activating me. There were so many things he was saying that were just, I wanted to react. But I also knew that there was nothing here in this right now that my reaction was going to fix. So I just kept breathing. And I kept going, okay, so what's he, what's he saying? He's trying to, he's really upset about something. There's a feeling here. He's using words and a lot of words that I don't like and I wouldn't use and, and words that I think are inappropriate sometimes. But if I get stuck on those, we're not going to have a conversation. And so what I would, what I would do is I would take a breath and I'd try to get to the, my own feeling, which is like, I'm feeling agitated. Um, I'm feeling reactive. How do I feel more? I can get more grounded. And then I would listen for the feelings underneath. And then where it was possible, I would say things like, well, I don't agree with that, but it sounds like what you're saying though, is you're feeling a little bit handcuffed by certain rules that you think are coming from top down mm. and are making it harder for you to do your job. Is that what you're saying? He was, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. And then you go on and you say some more stuff. And so I made these inter, inter interaction. I made these kinds of things. And then at a certain point, I wanted to change the conversation. And I, and, and I, I also, I'd done enough listening. I said, well, you know, one thing that, that I also know too, is that that there are particular communities, indigenous communities, uh, where you are residing, and and especially the black communities, that those communities actually have a really long history of distrust with the police. And they are also feeling frustrated by the lack of action. And I think there might be some solutions in here. And so what I wanted to do was I, 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 start bringing, I, I started bringing the community perspective into this, the perspective that he didn't necessarily know, even though he interacted with the communities. And so it turned it into a conversation and we kind of went back and forth. We didn't get to like a solution and there wasn't like a big hug at the end of it. <laughs> what I found interesting was that um, uh, uh, the next day I had a Facebook invite from this police officer. And I thought that was really interesting. There was something about what was happening there that felt more relational. There was space. And also, you know, there's like trauma. If they're mm-hmm. police officers, they're also traumatized. They're looking in the face of the ugliness of, of, of struggle, of death, of all kinds of things. And so there's trauma there too. So being aware of like what's happening in that moment is important. Now, I want to go back to this idea that in that moment, I had that capacity. In that moment, I, I knew my limits. I knew what I could be in. And it turned into a dialogue, into a conversation. Um, but that's not everyone's capacity. 
And I don't want to judge people for what, how they're feeling on that day. Mm-hmm. And I especially don't want to judge minoritized people. If they're like, I do not have time to talk to a damn cop. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. I'm like, good. Then you shouldn't have to know your limits. And then when you have capacity, stretch a little bit. And I say that to everybody, which is like, know your limits and then stretch a little bit, but know how you're feeling, be grounded inside yourself. And I think that this is also what the research shows is that, you know, um, there's research that shows if you want to change people, spend some time listening to them, Mm -hmm. spend some time um, uh, uh, reflecting back what you're hearing. Doesn't always work, but it's more likely to work. We, they, we, they've shown that in um, um, changing people's attitudes towards, um, uh, you know, um, trans rights when it's put onto ballots um, in, in Southern Florida. And um, it's shown in other contexts, too. So I want to say that our ability to be in conversation means we've got to be in conversation with ourselves. We've got to be grounded in ourselves. We've got to have tools at our disposal. We've also got to have the emotional capacity to be in compassionate relationship with others while also honoring our own boundaries. I think sometimes compassion gets seen as soft and, and, and sort of like give away all your power as opposed to compassion is also about self-compassion. It's about staying and knowing who you are and knowing what your limits are and knowing what your limits are on this day, which might be different than the other day. Mm-hmm. And knowing your identity and how it's also playing out is also part of the compassion circle that but often gets left out in, in conversations around mindfulness, which is how does identity play into this, which it always is playing. Mm-hmm. And so I invite people to hold these multiple tensions um, because that's how we can be most compassionate with each other and relational because without the relationships, without compassion, we're just going down fast. Mm. Aren't we? Let's look at your book uh, specifically for a moment. Um, you named four pillars of the deep diversity model which are emotions, bias, identity, and power. And starting with emotions, uh, when you're talking about the importance of emotional literacy, here's a quote from the book. Feelings are at the roots of our actions, whether we are aware of them or not. A significant portion of our decision-making lies below the surface of our awareness. This is what you've just been talking to, is helping people return to their feeling. Mm-hmm. It's emotions are the first pillar of the deep diversity framework. And it's because I've personally burnt out because of my own lack of awareness around my emotional state. Mm-hmm. That was part of my journey in my, um, uh, in my late twenties, early thirties, I burnt out and I started, uh, I embarked on my own healing journey. And that's also where I started encountering m- mindfulness uh, therapeutic supports, different kinds of things. And the more I learned about myself, the freer I became, the more empowered I became. And so as I learned about the psychology of what it means to be me, I, I realized there was so much I didn't know. I had so much I didn't know about my own emotions, my ability to name our emo- my own emotions, uh, my ability to know my limits, uh, which is also part of the burnout. And it's a cycle of burnout happens in, in activism all the time. And so emotions are really critical, just period. And uh, I draw on a lot of neuroscience research that 
that says exactly that, that our next thought is based on our last feeling, whether we are aware of it or not. So, so, um, but emotions are also at play around issues of difference. And uh, what I mean by issues of, of difference is that, is that our empathy circuits light up when around people that we perceive to be most like ourselves. And our threat response system, our, um, our amygdala region, starts getting activated uh, when we tend to be around people that we have less experience with, especially people who are racially different. So emotions are at play all the time, and they're also especially at play around issues of difference. And this is the difference between our cognitive and our, um, and our uh, affective. The difference between our conscious and our unconscious is that we can therefore believe that we want to be colorblind. But our unconscious mind, which is way, 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 way bigger, uh, 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 is always tracking identity because that's what it does. We have stereotypes and biases part of how the brain works. And so what, what I'm trying to do in this, uh, this chapter of the book is really allow people to start realizing we are emotional beings first. As much as the cognitive is a highly valued part of who we are, the bigger part is, in fact, our unconscious. And Jonathan Hyde, a uh, researcher psychologist, came up with the metaphor of the rider and the elephant, which I know that I've used in the session with um, the folks at uh, IMS when we, when, I was, when we were in the training together. And, and that, that metaphor of the rider referring to the conscious mind, uh, the person sitting on top of the elephant, which is the unconscious, is the size mismatch that we need to be able to identify. So that's, that's really important is that people don't often realize how big our emotions are, but we are emotional beings first and thinking being second. Now, our cognitive, our rider is also our executive control functions, which, and this is where the role of mindfulness can come in because it is the role of the rider. If we, it, it has the gift of self-observation. And if we can do that without judgment, that's what actually allows us to align our rider and our elephant, align our emotions and, and our thinking states to be more integrated and to inform each other. And when we can be more aware of our emotional states, well, we can do something about it. And that's the whole ball of wax around mindfulness meditation is to help support that integration, to be able to see those impulsive parts of ourselves, those less, those icky parts of ourselves we want to pretend aren't there our biases, our prejudice, our hate, our woundedness, like that can all be hidden away unless we are taught to look at it. And that's, that's what the, that's what the, um, the conscious mind is, has the possibility of doing if we train it and work in alignment and harmony with, with our unconscious. And then, then we could be in a different place. So that's a big part of the emotional, um, the emotional part of, uh, of the deep diversity framework is and this work, especially around justice, around discrimination, it evokes emotions. And so we have to be able to apply the inner skills of self-awareness and self-regulation, our ability to manage ourselves. This is where all the mindfulness practice can support us to be able to do that. Because without that, we really can't get too far because we can get just locked in either or tensions and binaries and good and bad and good and bad people and good and bad groups. And we've got to get past that. So emotions is the first part of that, of that framework. Thank you. And next on the list is bias. You define implicit bias as a hidden or unintentional preference for a particular group based on social identity, 
such as race, gender, class, ability, or sexual orientation. It's a form of prejudice that is indirectly expressed, originating in the unconscious mind. So here we are again, needing mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think, again, um, the idea for me here is that this is rooted a lot in the research around implicit bias, um, a lot which comes out of Project Implicit, which is collaboration between three big universities, including Harvard. And, um, and basically what I found very empowering when I first learned about um, unconscious bias, which is you know many years ago now, was that it takes the, it also helps remove the shame and blame because often we start thinking about bias and prejudice as the domain of, of bad people, mm-hmm. as opposed to bias is the domain of all people because bias is a filter and, um, and we need weirdly, we need biases because we need filters. Mm-hmm. Uh, our brain processes millions of pieces of information every second. We didn't have some way to process that information, to categorize it, to filter out the noise and focus on what's important. We didn't have filters. By their very nature, we'd be utterly overwhelmed. We would not know what to focus on. And that's part of the challenge of those of our community who are further down along the autism spectrum. It's information overload. And many people um, uh, along the autism spectrum have to be taught how, what to focus on and how to focus on things because there might be hyper-focus or overwhelm. It's really easy. Whereas those of us who are described as more neurotypical, our brain just kind of does it. Uh, we don't have to be fully taught how to do that. So, so recognizing that a filter by its very nature allows some information in and keeps some information out. Well, that's just another word for, for bias. It's just another word for prejudice. That's what we do. We focus on certain things. We don't focus on other things. Um, we, we focus on, uh, on white people as our role models and then start reacting uh, when Lord of the Rings, the prequel uh, that just came out, has a multiracial cast. And people are now reacting because, well... They expect hobbits and everybody else to be white unless they're, unless they're villains in the story. And so people are reacting. And, and we tend to react because it's not what we expect. Mm-hmm. And so our biases show up uh, and it, they form our habits. They form what we anticipate. Who's supposed to be a leader? Who's not supposed to be a leader? There are gender norms in this. We think of doctor, engineer, nurse. CEO of a bank, we start seeing if I was to canvas any random group of 100 people, we would see that there'd be a very strong gender skew. There'd be very common um, images that would pop up when I said engineer, mm-hmm. nurse, doctor, scientist, CEO. And why is that? That's because we've been socialized into that, but we've been socialized. Um, that's the software but we already have the hardware that needs to categorize, that needs to filter, that needs to use stereotypes because otherwise we'd be overwhelmed. So, so bias and stereotypes um, are just neurological functions as part of how we perceive, categorize, remember, and learn. So in understanding that, that part of the framework is really to help people go, right, you're not bad. 
There's no such thing as bias-free. In fact, we all have biases. Now, how do we manage them? And again, the more that we accept that we have bias, the more that then we can learn to see it. So I tell a lot of stories in, in my book about, about my own um, sketchy behavior, <laughs> my own bias and my own missteps. And so, so like, for example, just really quickly, so that I want to put myself in this story here, is that uh, I tell a story where uh, I'm, I walk into an optometrist office and I asked for, and I'm getting a new pair of glasses, but I don't have an updated prescription. And the person behind the desk says, well, you know, you can get one. There's a optometrist down the road, optometrist down the road, and they hand me their, their card. And, and the name on the card said, says Abdeso Kianfar. And just on a plain white card, simple black lettering. And Abdeso Kianfar is the name optometrist. The address is just a few, a few blocks over. And I paused and I hesitated. And in my head, an image floated up of a quote unquote foreign man in a musty dark office. And the whole vibe of the image that popped into my head was somehow less skilled, somehow less than. I hesitated and I paused and I put the card away. Now, the whole story is about my pause. Afterwards, of course, I realized what I was doing. I realized my bias had come up, but the, but the pause was it. I hesitated. And I hesitated at, um, at the name, Abdeso Kianfar, which actually isn't their real name. Um, but uh, I hesitated. And I... Uh, my first rationalization that my unconscious kicked up was because, well, it's an unimpressive business card. It's like, it's plain white with black text. Like who uses that these days? But I also know when I paused and I took a breath that that wasn't the right answer. That was a justification because if that plain white business card had said, had said, uh, Jennifer Goldstein or, uh, uh, Jack Smith, I would not have hesitated. And that's also interesting because I don't have a white name, Shaquille mm -hmm. Chobri. Mm -hmm. And this is how internalized racism happens. This is how uh, anti-immigration sentiments get socialized into us as somehow less than. So I tell that story because um, it happened in a half a second. But the reason I can tell you the story is because I've pre-programmed my brain to be on the lookout Mm -hmm. I pre-program my rider to be on the lookout for my sketchy behavior, um, to, to, to notice when I hesitate and then analyze why. And that's what we all need to do because that's what the elephant will, the unconscious part of us will always kick up a reason to justify our behavior. That's what the unconscious is designed to do. And our, and our, um, our rider will come up with the words. Our, our conscious mind will come up with the words. So, so um, in, in equipping ourselves with the knowledge and with compassion that we are going to make mistakes, it allows our less than savory prejudice and bias to come to the surface and get exposed and then hopefully blunted uh, because it's been exposed to the light of day. And and um, and and it's practice. 
And we've got to do that over and over again. And, and we show up with compassion. We're going to, we're going to make mistakes, but we're going to be accountable for our mistakes. Fortunately, in this situation, there's no harm. There's no foul. No one got affected, uh, in my story. But if there was, which has also happened in the past, I then have to apologize. I have to say, whoa, I'm so sorry. I made a, mm. I made a, um, uh, an assumption and that was just straight up wrong. Uh, and so our ability to apologize for our mistakes in public is also a skill. And again, if you have compassion for yourself, you're going to be more likely to do that. If you're not, shame and blame is going to kick up. And you're going to avoid, run, deny, get really fragile. Great. So the next pillar is identity, which we're also talking about in a way. And that's the complex one. How would you define identity and why does it have such an impact on these issues? Well, our identity is who we are as a person, but our identity comes from our belonging to groups. That's how our identity forms, whether it's pink and blue informing the norms for boys and girls, um, uh, language and accent groups. Uh, We know, for example, research with babies that in the first few months of life, they're responding to people of all different backgrounds. Um, more or less the same, but within six to nine months, there's already a change that babies are reacting more quickly to people who share the same gender as their caregiver. We're reacting more quickly to people who share the same race and ethnicity as their caregiver, reacting more quickly to people who share the same language and accent group as their caregiver. So researchers don't know how, what the exact mechanism is within babies that makes that happen, but we're absolutely convinced that we are born with the hardware that must define who are my people and who are not. Because who are my people from an ancient um, evolutionary perspective is about survival. The more, the more quickly I can identify my people, the more likely I am to survive. So even though we might think ourselves as like individuals, our individuality has, has come informed by our socialization to groups. So so that's, identity is always playing out. Again, we may have, from the civil rights era, gotten to a point where, where society and members of society may believe that it's best to be colorblind and not see, not see color, for example, and it's the best person for the job. However, um, what we also know is that regardless, uh, our conscious mind might think that, but our unconscious, our elephants, are definitely noticing mm. identity because that's part of survival. So realizing identity is key. Now, the tension is when does identity matter? And mm. when does it matter less? And when does it matter more? And in holding the tension that both identity matters, and ideally it shouldn't matter. And holding both of those tensions actually allows us to to find um, and hold the ability to be in relationship where, you know, for me, my goal is to hold my identity lightly. Like, I don't want to be defined by my salvation identity. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be defined by the fact that I was raised in a Muslim context. Um, I don't want to be defined by the fact that I grew up in small towns um, I don't want to be defined by the fact that I've lived for 25 years in an urban metropolis. 
um, or by my one interest or by my second interest. I want to be seen as a whole person. So, so um, to hold our identity lightly means we've got to see all of those things, right? Um, uh, I live in uh, Ontario, for example, and uh, most of the population lives in Southern Ontario and Northern Ontario, for example, is massive. And there are huge sections of, of the province in which there are no roads and they're only flying communities. Well, guess what? Folks in the North are very clear that policies for the most part that govern their lives have been driven by people who live in Southern Ontario. Mm-hmm. People in Southern Ontario, where the big urban centers are, have no clue that's the case. So our identities are, are complicated. They can be regional. They are racial. They are gendered. They are uh, religious. Um, and, and because our brains are wired to notice difference, it's so important. So a big part of, of this, uh, of this uh, part of the framework is really I start talking about the research from social identity theory, which helps us understand the dynamics of in-groups and out-groups. And these dynamics are common. Uh, they are global. Uh, they can happen in large groups and they can happen in small groups um, uh, over a man- matter of minutes. You can just put people into the group that is the green shirt group and the blue shirt group. And people start acting along in-group and out-group behavior um, um, all like within, within minutes, quite frankly. And our tendency towards our in-group is more care more consideration. Um, whereas our outgroups, uh, we're more suspicious. We want something in return. And so, you know, on a political level, you are seeing for a number of factors that include neoliberalism, um, you know, uh, really corrupt actors uh, in, in politics, um, uh, desperation, rich and poor. What we're seeing is deep polarization, in places like the United States mm-hmm. to a point where uh, liberals and conservatives uh, are so antagonistic towards each other to a point where today um, uh, people are, are more concerned about their children marrying people who might be members of the other party. That that's, that that's a bigger concern today than it ever was historically. And in fact, you know, 50 years ago, interracial marriage was sort of frowned upon more. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, whereas no one really cared that much whether you married across party lines, whereas now it's reversed. People care less about the interracial and much more about party lines. Mm-hmm. That's in group out group mm-hmm. behavior. And, and we got to know that we're being influenced by these unconscious forces. And these unconscious forces have been socialized. And Again, like everything that's unconscious, what's hidden has more power. What we can't see has more influence. But we, when we can identify something, when we can name it, we can also tame it. And so identity means we got to get comfortable naming our own identity, our race, our gender, our sexual orientation, our disability, our language, our region, and so on. And in order to be in conversation with others and just have more practice with it. And it's our lack of practice in these that make us clumsy and awkward and then reactive. And the more practice we have, the easier it becomes. Because again, as much as our conscious mind might want to deny that identity is at play, 
identities always at play at our unconscious. All the research shows that. Um, our empathy circuits light up. Our threat response systems light up um, when we when we uh, tend to notice people's identities, especially people that we have less experience with. And finally, um, the last pillar is power, which you approach from a personal lens as well as a social one. So maybe you could just say something about that. Well, the last part about power is the most challenging thing because the first three parts, emotions, bias, and identity, there are there's common grounds for everybody. That's the human condition. We all have emotions. We're all going to get reactive, uh, that, that uh, we all have biases. We all belong to in-groups, out-groups. All of that is, is, is where we are all the same. But power is the hardest thing because power is... Um, is how social, economic, and historical trends and patterns have it such that the groups that we belong to, the identity groups we belong to, uh, don't all have equal access to power and influence. And that's the whole conversation around systemic, is recognizing that there are um, groups that are systematically treated differently, less um, over-policed, under-treated, and groups that are treated better and, uh, uh, and treated with more compare, uh, with more care and compassion and consideration. And that, that, that is, that's, the book is basically building us up to hold that conversation because that's the most difficult one. It's hardest to see power uh, dynamics. It's the thing that we are least taught to notice. Yet it is the thing that plays out, whether it is the power that a manager has in a workplace or a director or a CEO, or whether it's the power of our, um, of our identity. So uh, what I think about is, um, I think about how power dynamics play out with my partner and I. Her name is Anahid. Um, she identifies as a, as a cisgender woman. And, um, and so power plays out like this. We can go to, uh, if we're renovating our home, going to pick out flooring, she will ask the question and the person who is, who is, uh, serving us at the hardware store turns in response to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and that's an interesting thing that that's, all of a sudden, for some reason, she's asking the question, I'm getting the response, I'm getting the eye contact. This is a common experience for women. This is a common experience, especially for women of color. This is a, a, a power dynamic that has played out historically, uh, that has played out over time. So uh, noticing the micro is really important. Now, this, this plays out so that that's happening on a micro level less consideration being given. On a macro level, this is playing out at, in workplaces where uh, uh, in non-unionized environments, uh, women make 70 to 80 cents on the dollar compared to their, to their male counterpart. Okay, And that is from frontline staff to Hollywood starlets. So, so we are seeing that this uh, these little micro signals play out on system levels. It, it turns out 
it turns out um, uh, to impact who is getting um, recruited, who's getting noticed, uh, who's give, being given stretch assignments at work and being shown off as potential to rise, uh, and who is not. And when you take a look, identity plays out there. And again, as I said at the start, uh, we have decades of research that backs us up. We have research that shows. And I've done primary research in, uh, uh, when we do audits inside organizations. Uh, and what we see is that is that minoritized groups based on race, gender, sexual orientation, disability, have the highest rates of harassment discrimination and the lowest rates of advancement and promotion. That's a system pattern. And so we've got to learn to see how those power dynamics play out. And power literacy is one part of equity literacy. Mm -hmm. And it's the most challenging because this is where we need, again, discernment. This is where we need to be able to see ourselves and how we are interacting in the context of our communities and our colleagues and our families. And the more we can see that, the more sensitive we can be towards power. Um, not because we want to give it all away necessarily, but we want to be able to use power fairly and also share power, which is very important, which hasn't been done historically. So overall, in, in creating equity in the world, which is different than equality, equality is sameness, equity is fairness, um, we've got to be able to see those power dynamics. And that's that's part of the challenge where we get into so many dynamics like why why is there a um uh why is there a a um gay pride group why isn't there a pride group for straight people why is there a women's center not a center for men why is there employee resource groups or in society or in schools that that are for black employees or black students, but not for white students. So those are complicated questions. And unless we can see how power plays out, things that are trying to create fairness in the world can look discriminatory because we don't understand the power dynamics behind it. So, um, you know, uh, uh, why is there a math class that is for, uh, that, is for girls only. Well, because we know that girls learn better, uh, learn math better. Um, some girls learn math better in uh, in same sex classes. So, why wouldn't we do that? That's not discrimination. That's actually helping um, young girls and women get further ahead in a system that is where sexism and patriarchy dissuades them from entering. Uh, subjects like math, science, technology. But if we don't understand power, that looks like reverse sexism, for example, quote unquote. And so, and so that's why we got to understand power because otherwise, in attempts to make fairness happen, people can misread that and say inaccurately that something is quote unquote reverse discrimination, when in fact it's just a remedy towards discrimination. Mm -hmm. This is all really fascinating, and I think the work is really important, clearly, and your work and your book are, I think, a big contribution to that sort of general need and, and the time. So thank you for all of that. And I'm wondering if to 
close our conversation, you could lead us in a reflection or a meditation practice of some kind. Sure. I really appreciate that. So I think what's really easy to happen in this work is to become, is to feel disempowered, is to feel disheartened and to turn away from the work. And what I'd like to do is, first of all, invite an awareness that that's completely normal because this is the unknown right now for many people. We don't have practice at doing this. It's like, you know, watching a child uh, throw a ball uh, originally. It looks very awkward. It looks a bit like a shot put. But after 10,000 throws, it's a very smooth throw. They're no longer struggling. The first days of mindfulness, I was looking at my clock every 15 <laughs> seconds, wondering whether time was up because it's really hard. And, uh, and yet over practice, uh, I, I was able to do a 10-day silent meditation retreat. So, you know, all of this work around diversity, equity, inclusion can feel really disempowering because we have a lack of practice. And I just want people to really take that in. It's sheer practice. Mindfulness can support that because it's the awareness building. So to support both awareness building, but also to support the sense of disempowerment, I'd like to invite us into a little bit of a meditation that allows us just simply to find a sense of inner strength within us. And so I invite you to take a breath And exhale. Inhale. And gently exhale. Notice the words, the thoughts, the feelings that have been emerging through this conversation with you. No judgment, just bring awareness to perhaps the thoughts first. Just let them go. Notice what they are. Put a post-it note on them that says thought and let it go. Notice sensations in your body. Don't judge them. Maybe there's hot or cold. Maybe there's tightness or stillness. Or maybe there's places where you can't feel. And it's okay. Just notice. Have judgment. Keep breathing. Let the feelings and sensations arise. Be aware of them. And breathe into them. Now, what I'd like for you to do is think about something that makes you feel strong inside yourself. Something that makes you feel happy something that makes you feel relaxed and generous, something that makes you feel perhaps powerful, maybe a person, maybe a place, maybe an image, it can be a thing, it can be a beloved pet, it can be a memory of your ancestor. And I want you to allow that memory 
that image, that person, place, thing, the ancestor. Bring that into your awareness. Bring that into your heart. And allow that to grow like a ball of golden light as you remember that person, that place, that, that thing, the ancestors that allow you to feel strong, empowered, loved, happy, light, silly, whatever is most alive for you in this moment. And on each exhale, keep breathing into that place, into that image, into that part of your body that is currently being filled. And allow that golden light and those feelings and sensations of care, of strength, of lightness, of joy, that start affecting your belly and your chest. On each exhale, let it branch out to another part of your body, your shoulders and neck. Let it affect your head in your arms, in your hands, wherever you may be in your breathing cycle. Let it move down into your pelvis, into your legs and knees. On each exhale, working your way down to your ankles and feet, letting the light, the joy, the strength, the care, that person, place, thing, ancestor, just hold you, feel you, care for you. And as that is happening, your physiology is shifting. Your heart rate and blood pressure are in a different place from they were before, a little calmer, a little steadier. And so whenever you feel clumsy or awkward or scared or nervous about stepping into conversations about race and ethnicity and gender and racism and sexism and so on, bring this resource to the conversation. Take a moment to breathe, to notice where you are. Find ways to dance with your feeling and know that you always have a deep resource within you to allow you to stay fluid, erect, not collapse, because you have a great deal of compassion and care right within you. And wherever you are in your breathing cycle, let's do three breaths together, exhaling now. And inhale and hold it at the top. 
and exhale. Inhale one more time. Take in more air than you did before and hold it at the top. And hold it. And exhale one last time. One last big steady inhale. And hold it at the top. And hold it. And exhale. Let your breathing come back to normal. Bring some movement into your hands. Open and close them. You bring some movement into your feet, into your shoulders and neck. And whenever you are ready, let the light filter back into your eyes, re-enter the room, take a look around. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for that, and thank you for joining me today. To learn more about Shaquille's work, you can visit ShaquilleWrites.com. It's S-H-A-K-I-L-W-R-I-T-E-S.com. Please get a copy of his book, Deep Diversity, which is available in hardcover, paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats. We're thanking all of you who are out there listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.